Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Clouds and rain in most of the Atlanta region. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, outgoing Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard is reportedly under investigation by the Department of Justice. WAB legal analyst Paige Pate joins me. They're not trying to understand what happened. They Mm -hmm. are asking for specific documents to basically prove the case. So to me, this is not the beginning of the investigation. This is getting close to the end of the investigation. And yes, if he's charged and convicted of a felony, he can forget about practicing law. That conversation and more, including an update in the Ahmaud Arbery shooting death, is just moments away. And in Atlanta last night, a demonstration took place in downtown Atlanta after no murder charges were announced in the killing of Breonna Taylor, killed by Louisville police officers back in March as they were executing a search warrant. Protesters briefly blocked traffic in front of the state capitol. The crowd eventually marched on as law enforcement advanced. Police did use tear gas and rubber bullets to disperse remaining protesters. Now, according to the Atlanta Police Department, there were 11 arrests. Yesterday, a Kentucky grand jury returned an indictment of only first-degree wanton endangerment against one of three officers. But that officer, Brett Hankinson, fired shots into a neighboring apartment of Breonna Taylor's. Now in other news, the head of the CDC says a vast majority of Americans are still vulnerable to COVID-19. Dr. Robert Redfield told Congress yesterday more than 90 percent of people in the U.S. have not been infected by the coronavirus. It varies in different geographic parts from states that have less than 1 percent with evidence of previous infection to some that have more than 15, 20 and one as high as 24 percent. Dr. Redfield says the CDC plans to release more information in the next week about which states have more infections. Now, here in Georgia at this time, there's been 309,678 COVID-19 cases since March. 27,749 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,077 were ICU admissions. 6,770 Georgians have reportedly died due to the coronavirus 98 deaths were reported in the past 24 hours. All of this is according to the State Department of Public Health. And now on to this. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the U.S. Department of Justice is has launched an investigation into possible criminal misconduct by Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard, or we should say outgoing Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard. Now, Closer Look reached out to both Howard's office and the Department of Justice Neither have responded as of air date. But joining me now to discuss this and some other national legal news, criminal defense attorney and WABE legal analyst, Paige Pate. Welcome back to the program, as always. Thank you, Rose. It's great to be with you. Let's begin with this, what we believe it to be, the U.S. Justice Department opening a criminal investigation regarding uh, Paul Howard. When, when the DOJ page opens up a criminal investigation regarding an elected official, that's typically pretty major, right? It, it certainly can be, and especially in this case where I think the investigation is being run out of D.C., the Public Integrity Unit. Uh, they obviously only take cases of national significance. So if it's reached that level, it means more than they're just looking into it or there's some sort of you know, investigation to find out what happened. It means that they are strongly considering criminal charges and they've got a grand jury impaneled and they're heading in that direction. Well, Paige, last month, Paul Howard did pay a 6500 ethics fine for not disclosing he, he was the CEO of two nonprofits that the city of Atlanta had actually awarded some funding to. 
And Howard, through a consent agreement, agreed they violated more than a dozen violations. That will send some flags to folks higher up. Well, certainly. I mean, if you look at this arrangement, it it was clearly an attempt to get around state law, which generally prohibits cities like Atlanta from paying elected district attorneys. District attorneys get paid by the state, and in some places they get supplements from the county. But nowhere in Georgia does a district attorney get a supplement from the city. Paul Howard asked for one. They said no. So he figures that he can start this nonprofit as a way to get around that and still supplement his income for basically doing his job. I mean, that's what this nonprofit was doing. It was simple community outreach from an elected district attorney, which most DAC is part of their job anyway. So the the circumstances were highly questionable to begin with. And you couple that with the lack of transparency. You don't even disclose you're the CEO uh, in the official paperwork you're supposed to file with the Ethics Commission. You're just asking for a criminal investigation. It's arrogance. It's sheer arrogance. So it appeared this might have been the end of this by paying that fine with the Ethics Commission. But now the DOJ launches an investigation. You got to think that Howard might have be expecting this. I know you can't speak for him, but... yeah. No, but it wasn't just this DOJ investigation. I mean, remember that the uh, attorney general's office had already asked the GBI to look into these transactions, these checks from the city to this nonprofit. So there was certainly the potential for a criminal investigation even before he settled his ethics case. So Mm -hmm. uh, this shouldn't surprise him, but it does raise the volume on the case significantly when it's now being run by public integrity out of D.C. And I know the guy that runs that section. Mm -hmm. He was a former U.S. attorney out in Louisiana. Tough guy, methodical guy, and hell-bent on public corruption cases. Now, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, there is a subpoena that is seeking, quote here, communications, requests, and records between the city and the Fulton DA's office from January 1, 2014 through December 31, 2017. If you are Paul Howard, if you are his defense and there's a paper trail. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I think the the paper trail is fairly clear. I don't think there's going to be much dispute about where the money went. I mean, there are checks cut directly to Paul Howard from this nonprofit, supposedly for some sort of extra compensation. And the amounts seem to vary from year to year. And it's substantial. I understand it's close to two hundred thousand dollars over a couple Uh, maybe two and a half year period. So that's going to be clear and that's going to be supported by the documentation. Uh, I think the ultimate question for his defense is going to be, was it okay for him to do it? Clearly the city knew that the money was going to this nonprofit and Paul Howard is claiming the city knew he was going to get some of this money, but did the city know he was going to get most of the money? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just hard to believe they would have approved it if that was the case. Uh, What's the, I mean, the the outcome of this? I mean, there, I guess there are different scenarios in terms of the outcome page, but could Paul Howard maybe be forced to pay the money back? Could he be disbarred? I mean, disbarred because he is an attorney in a sense. Uh, could this prevent him from running sense. from office? <laughs> there are a lot of scenarios here, Paige. Yes, yes. Well, Everything will follow the criminal investigation. So I don't think there'll be any paying back the money or or bar issues that he's going to have to deal with until the criminal investigation is completed and there's either a case against him or there's not. But look, when the government is subpoenaing, I mean, they're not trying to get they're not trying to understand what happened. They Mm -hmm. are asking for specific documents to basically prove the case. So to me, this is not the beginning of the investigation. This is getting close to the end of the investigation. And yes, if he's charged and convicted of a felony, he can forget about practicing law uh, and he's looking at potential jail time. Well, let's shift for a moment, although it is connected because Paul Howard did indict two officers involved in the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks from this past summer. Could these legal troubles for Howard hinder that case at all? Might the defense for those officers say, well, look, this district attorney can't be trusted or obviously maybe unethical and how he does procedures. Could this at all hinder this case? Uh, No, I don't think so. I mean, whatever happens to Paul Howard is is just going to affect Paul Howard from this point forward. 
However, I do think there is a good chance that those cases um, against the officers involved in that shooting may not make it all the way to a jury because we do have a new district attorney and it will be her decision whether to proceed with that case, dismiss it, resolve it. So I, I certainly think that the defense lawyers uh, for those officers are probably already in communication with the incoming DA and her transition team and trying to get this thing derailed. And, and she will have every right to undo what Paul Howard has done. Let's stay with that for a moment, Paige, because through your lens, and we're talking about Fannie Willis, the incoming district attorney for Fulton County, might she want to restart an investigation, scrap everything that Paul Howard and his team have done so far, drop the charges, but then say we're doing our own investigation to determine if, if and get another grand jury. Can they do that? Yes, they absolutely can do that. And, and again, I have not spoken to Ms. Willis about it or, or really anything <laughs> since the election. But, I, you know, I, I think there was a rush to judgment in that case um, for political reasons. Now, this doesn't mean the officers should not be charged. Mm -hmm. um, I think based on the evidence, and we've talked about this before, some of those officers should be charged. Now, what they're charged with is up for debate. But the way that it was handled by Paul Howard, I think certainly... Uh, calls into question whether the investigation was truly fair and objective because the GBI was basically cut out of it. And Paul mm -hmm. Howard decided, hey, I'm going to set up a press conference. This could help my political situation with this upcoming election. So I would not at all be surprised if Ms. Willis, once she takes office, wants a fresh look at the case. And let's shift to another case here in Georgia, and that is the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, Paige, what's the latest on that? What are you hearing? You spend a lot of time down in the Brunswick area. What are you hearing? Well, right now, uh, there's a pending bond motion for the two McMichaels, and so there's probably going to be a bond hearing at some point to determine if they can be released from custody. I, I think the chance of that is remote, uh, just given the nature of the offense. Uh, murder cases, usually the person who's charged does not get bond. Uh, the case just proceeds to trial. But the people charged in this case uh, with murder, the McMichael specifically, have no criminal history whatsoever. Uh, there's no trial date on the horizon because of the COVID-19 pandemic and other reasons. So it, it's, not, it, it's not unthinkable that they may be granted a bond and released. Uh, other than that, the case is just waiting on a court date. Mm -hmm. Motions will be filed, they'll be heard, and eventually there'll be a trial. But the next big event will be a consideration of bond for the McMichaels. And it's a judge, obviously, that would approve that. What are they looking at? I mean, are they just looking at whether or not the individual has any prior criminal records? Or are they looking at could they be a flight risk? What are the, what's the criteria involved uh, in that? that? That is such a great question, and it's something I just dealt with very recently in court in Glen County. You know, a lot of people think, well, the crime is so serious or the evidence is so strong, they shouldn't be granted a bond. Or, you know, the victims in the case oppose granting a bond, so they shouldn't get a bond. No, the factors under Georgia law are, are basically, will this person show up to court mm -hmm. if we give them a bond? And will this person be a danger to the community or any potential witnesses if we let them out of jail? So things like criminal history, ties to the community, um, responding to court process before. Flight risk is the number one issue under Georgia law for consideration of bond. So if you look at a case like this with the McMichaels, I don't think they're a flight risk. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps they are a danger to the community, but their history doesn't show it. They don't have a prior criminal history. So that, that's why I think they have a shot at bond, even though this case is extremely serious and obviously very high profile. There's another gentleman, too, Mr. Bryant. He's still incarcerated. It, well, he is. He's in custody in the Glen County Detention Center. And he already, his lawyer asked for a bond, and that bond was denied. But apparently, uh, Mr. Bryant also has some other pending uh, potential criminal charges as well. And so his case, I think, was treated a little differently. Hmm. Meanwhile, Paige, let's get your thoughts regarding another shooting death. This one obviously making national, international headlines involving law enforcement. And that is no murder charge charges for any of the officers involved in the Breonna Taylor killing, which took place in March uh, early this year in Kentucky. Your reaction? Well, not only was no one charged with murder, but the officers that actually shot uh, Breonna Taylor were not charged at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the only guy who was charged was the officer who 
didn't hit her um, and, and shot so poorly that he was charged with you know wanton reckless conduct which uh, is frankly incredible to me you know we can we can look at this case and say you know by gosh the grand jury should have charged these officers with killing Breonna Taylor and, and that's a fair criticism to have but I think given the nature of this case the problem is way deeper than that the idea that a magistrate judge allowed a no-knock warrant in a situation like this because of Ms. Taylor's very distant and questionable connection to someone who was under the suspicion for drug trafficking, that warrant should have never been granted to begin with. And, and unless we take a serious look at how we're dealing with drug crime in this country, we're going to have situations like this pop up all the time. I mean, when you're beating on someone's door and you barge in and you're armed and you're threatening people, how are we surprised that someone gets shot and killed? An innocent person many times. So we've got to rethink the way we're dealing with execution of search warrants and the war on drugs but to really address this issue. And Paige, over the years, you and I have had the conversations because Atlanta obviously had a case involving a no-knock warrant in the that ended in the killing of a 92-year-old woman in the Vine City English Avenue neighborhood, Katherine Johnston. Well, Paige, let's talk about this no-knock warrant for a second. What authority, if you will, does it actually give law enforcement? Are they looking, can they arrest somebody? or What are they doing? No, uh, a search warrant is very different from an arrest warrant. If the law enforcement officers had probable cause that someone was inside that apartment and they had arrest authority for that person, judge had said, you go get this person. You're going to execute that warrant very differently than a search warrant, which is only permission to look around inside. It, it is not a direction to go and arrest anyone, certainly not a direction to go and assault anyone. So the way a search warrant is executed should be very differently than how an arrest warrant is executed. But I don't think the police who are executing these warrants see them any differently. They show up at the door, they're armed to the teeth, they are ready for battle before anyone ever knocks on the door. And in my experience, even when they have a knock and announce, and it's not a no-knock warrant, it's you're supposed to knock and announce, it's one hit on the door and then it's coming down. That's so, basically how it works. So for clarity and for our listeners to understand, the no-knock warrant is really just a search warrant. Is yes, that what you're saying? absolutely. Absolutely. And the basis, the constitutional basis for that, according to the Supreme Court, is twofold. One, you have reason to believe that someone inside the residence is armed and can present a danger to the officers. I don't know that there was any evidence here that that was the case. Number two, there you have evidence to believe that contraband, drugs in this case, would be destroyed. Evidence would be destroyed if you give them a chance to flush it down the toilet. Again, I don't know what evidence there was here that was special because in any drug case, if you're looking for drugs inside, there's obviously a chance those drugs could be destroyed if you knock on the door and patiently wait at the front, which goes back to our earlier point about we got to change the way we're handling drug investigations in this country because it is not that important to keep those drugs from not being flushed down the toilet that somebody dies. Hmm. Another aspect in this case, too, which is, the attorney general, Kentucky, citing two of the officers were justified in their use of force, as he put it, because they were fired upon first by Breonna Taylor's boyfriend. And some are saying not a homicide charge at all. That's right. You know, mm -hmm. Kentucky law is a little bit different from Georgia law in that regard. In, in Georgia, justification would be a defense for trial, sometimes an immunity defense, but usually a defense you raise at trial. In Kentucky, you know, and again, let's be clear about this grand jury process. I don't want anyone to think that a true, you know, objective, uh, fair look at the case was made by a grand jury and they declined to charge these officers. A grand jury only considers what the prosecutor wants them to consider. There's no defense lawyer there. There's no other side. Uh, the prosecutor presents the case as they want to present the case. You want to indict someone? I mean, the old saying is a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich mm -hmm. in front of a grand jury. You want an indictment? You can get an indictment. Same thing. You don't want an indictment? You can avoid an indictment. Simply present them the evidence you want them to hear. So for the AG to suggest, hey, I just let the citizens decide, uh, that's misleading and clearly false based on the way grand juries work. Well, Paige, these three counts of wanton endangerment, does that even typically carry any incarceration time? 
No, no. It's, a, I think, Class D felony under Kentucky law, which carries up to five years. And, and, I, and think about it this way. If the officer would have killed someone in the other apartment, the adjoining apartment, mm -hmm. he'd be looking probably at the five-year maximum. But since no one was killed, no one was hurt, I'd say he's looking at probation. Paige, I want to ask you to put on your political hat for a moment so it can intersect with your legal analysis. Obviously, I don't have a political hat. <laughs> Find one, Paige. Look. All right. Let's you, act like I have a political yes, hat. Yes, look, okay. look next right. to that UGA Bulldogs cap you got. But we're in election season, obviously, and the election's coming up. What do you think voters are going to pay attention to? Is it just which candidate may be in favor of police reform or criminal justice reform, which we've been hearing so much about over the last few years? Do you think that is at the top of a voter's mind right now? Well, I mean, that's a great point. I think the need for police reform and, and systemic racism in the judicial system, and let's be clear, there is systemic racism in the judicial system. People want to do something about that. It's clearly top of mind right now. But what, what do they do? Will electing a different president change all that? I don't think so. Um, Vice President Biden is saying the right things about criminal justice reform, but he was one of the folks that um, you know, brought us the, the crime bill back in the 90s, which mm -hmm. caused a lot of over-incarceration, in my opinion. So you know, everybody changes, and, and maybe he's going to do a lot of good things for criminal justice reform, but it, it's really a local-level issue. I mean, what we need to do, and we're seeing this in say we, people who are interested in this issue, and we're seeing this happen, is elect more progressive district attorneys on the local level, folks that will be more um, concerned about police accountability instead of you know, their relationship with the police officers or backing them up all the time. And, and many times they need to be supported, but it needs to be called out when they're doing something mm -hmm. wrong. So I, I think real reform in the judicial system is going to start from the local level although it certainly matters uh, what we're hearing from the top. And what we're hearing right now is the absolute worst message that could be delivered from anyone in a position of authority. And that's basically, you know, it's us against them. And if you're on the wrong side, good luck to you. And, and that's not going to help. And what about this, the role of state attorneys general in these cases? Can they play a, a fair role in that? Because even our attorney general said, look, I represent the state. You know. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And, and each state is a little different. Georgia's attorney general is basically the lawyer for the state and the lawyer for the governor. Uh, and, and although people can certainly under, you know, look at it and think, well, he's the attorney general. He must be above all the district attorneys in the different counties. No, uh, those district attorneys are absolutely the final word for prosecutions in their particular judicial district. The AG is not their boss, not in any way. Mm -hmm. And the attorney general is a political figure. I mean, they're, they're partisan, uh, especially our attorney general, who seems to be excessively partisan. So I, I think to expect anything from them as far as objectivity and fairness in a criminal investigation or prosecution, although it sometimes happens, I mean, the, Chris Carr has good people in his office, mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't think we should put that uh, burden on them or have that expectation of them. WABE legal analyst and criminal defense attorney and Paige, as always, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We know this pandemic has touched every corner of our lives, including the economy. Now, the U.S. unemployment rate obviously reached historic highs this past summer. We know that. We also know that the federal government has distributed trillions of dollars in aid. We know that. And we know the Small Business Administration recently approved 5.2 million loans totaling $659 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program. We know that. But we also know, as discussed on this program, not everyone has benefited. 
Now through NPR and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, well, there's been a study. And this study is looking at the economic effects of the pandemic and the disproportionate toll on households of color. And joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Robert J. Blinden, professor of public health and professor of health policy and political analysis emeritus at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Blinden, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Before we get to this report, I want to be fair because I've asked so many of our guests this question. And it's your first time appearing on this program. What do you make of just this extraordinary time that we're in? We're in a, a natural disaster, and that's how I view it. Our group's been involved in studying lots of natural disasters. In the epidemic side, it's the worst we've had since 1918. And uh, it's gone on longer than I think many experts thought, thought it would be. And it's, it, it's, it's a lot deeper. But in my mind, the way to think about it is it is ultimately a time-limited natural disaster. And the question is, A, how to get through this so people's lives and families go on. And then secondly, how you get restarted. And it's like a hurricane. Everything is gone. All right, what do we do to get uh, over time restarted? And we don't have the families just fall, fall apart uh, um, uh, for that. And that really was the concern of the study. And it's the equivalent of going, if Atlanta was clobbered by some big storm, how many people were hurt, uh, recovering, what do they need uh, for that? And, and uh, you started out in the background, and this is why the findings are somewhat surprising to us. Uh, if you watch the national news, we've just talked about trillions of dollars going in to help people uh, through this natural disaster of, a, of an epidemic. Mm -hmm. And it sounds incredibly large and huge. And uh, uh, likewise, we've heard about charitable state efforts, Georgia uh, doing things. And so when we did this, uh, of course, we expect people to have problems. And l let's be frank, the problems are always heaviest in this country unless we change mm -hmm. uh, among black Americans, Latino and, and Native Americans. Uh, you start out in the, in the storm with lower incomes, less assets, houses. You don't have a savings account that's that, that's that large uh, for this. At the same time, we expected with all the money that was being spent nationally, you would put some sort of a um, life raft, life preserver under people. Yes, the minority community is going to be worse off, but it wasn't going to be as giant mm -hmm. as, as our findings are. I mean, this money, and so the minority community not only has the economic issues, but they have the neighborhoods with the highest outbreak uh, of disease, mm -hmm. dying cases. So it's the equivalent. You were near the water and everything was wiped out. Your house is gone to everything else. So I and our group assumed, yes, there'd be the same historic differences. They would be narrow. People would be saying, I am getting this cush financial cushion to get through this damn thing. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that the financial problems of holding households together are staggering. Hmm. And when you all were conducting this study, the impact of coronavirus on households across America, take our listeners through what were the, the metrics you all were looking to use? Who did you talk to? How'd you gather your information? It is a, a representative sample where people actually were given a choice of being interviewed by telephone, cell phone, or computer. And in disasters, many people can't use their phone or they can't use their computer. So it, it's a representative sample for it. Uh, one of the things that's unusual about the questions is because we have worked in disaster areas. Everybody has a problem with the disaster, but a subgroup of people have really serious problems. Uh, they, they, their households are at risk of not going. So when we interviewed people, we said, uh, I only want to follow up if you say you have a serious problem. Mm -hmm. I know, yes, you're having some problem with payment or this or that, or you can't go where it is. Uh, we want to talk to you about the most basic things in your life if they're really serious uh, uh, for that. Uh, things like whether or not uh, you're having a serious problem because the savings are gone. Mm -hmm. I, I can't 
have a serious problem. I can't pay the bills. I can't pay rent. I can't pay the utilities. Uh, and uh, I can't pay my mortgage. And guess what? I'm running between two part-time jobs and I can't make my car payments. Mm -hmm. And so what they had to say to us, this is really serious for me. It's not just I have this anxiety, but it's really serious. And the numbers were just staggering uh, of people who said I had a major serious problem mm -hmm. uh, paying for it. And then we also focused with all your listeners on, on families that uh, are, are really caught having to educate their children at home. Mm -hmm. And we dealt with it like the food issue. Are they really sending food home, uh, et cetera? Well, if they're not, do I have some savings that I can cover my child's food? And so we found these people, no, mm -hmm. I, I don't have this. And it's a real problem. Let's give some numbers out there for our listeners, because the study found 60 percent of black households were facing serious financial problems. 72% of Latino and 55% of Native right. American respondents say their households were facing serious financial problems compared to, here's the number, 36% of white households. If that doesn't give someone an indication as it relates to income inequality or the disparities that have existed for such a long time, can you even begin to answer, well, what more did you need? What gets to us double that is uh, the historic things. But you're listening to a trillion dollars, which you think goes to neighborhoods that have the highest number of cases. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit, yes, you, you know, we have all these problems that have to be dealt with. Okay, my house is ruined. We're putting money where people lost their houses. And so uh, all this money is being spent and people are saying, I, I have staggering financial problems. Uh, for this. So we thought there would be some uh, uh, alleviation, this uh, public service announcement that we all said, we're all in this together. Uh, when you look at the results, no, we're not all in this together. Mm -hmm. uh, and the financial problems are so severe, uh, households are at risk of just not being able to hold the household together. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what it is. You can only not pay for a certain number of things and you have relatives moving in with you and things like that because they can't do it. You need some undergirding here. So when you think about that $1,200 that was granted to folks, a lot of folks said this is nice, but this may only help me for a month. Through your lens, if we're going to talk about how do we change this, how do we begin to these folks that are in this demographic that we're talking about, it's going to be much more than just another stimulus check that comes out. I mean, it that won't fix the problem, obviously. Well, and Congress can't even agree on it, so right now I guess it's something not even really to talk about. I still think, A, we have to talk about because people's lives at risk, and mm -hmm. uh, they're double with kids because kids who fall behind in school, kids who fall behind in food, it's hard in life catching up. So that's a big price to pay for not being able to deal with this. What should happen from the federal, the state, and local level? And, and on the local level, folks will say, we're doing all that we can. You know, and a state will say we're doing all that we can. And also at the same time, we're trying to battle this pandemic and keep new confirmed cases from increasing. And the federal government saying, well, you know, well, we're trying. What more can all of us do, I guess, in a sense? The issue is our group was focused on talking to people about their lives. Mm -hmm. We didn't think the problems would be as big or serious. And so there are two things going on here. I think there needs to be a quick bipartisan look why something that sounds like a trillion dollars have left so many families vulnerable. And I think we have people have to really go look at that. They have to interview people. They have to look at how many people couldn't get the checks, how many small businesses discovered uh, uh, they weren't there. Um, uh, there's a, a, a federal requirement that you can't be evicted. A number of NPR reporters have tracked down and interviewed people who were just evicted with this. Uh, for this, there's a need to really figure out uh, uh, why uh, we can't uh, do this. And also, you want programs in a, a flood or an epidemic that target on neighborhoods that have the highest problems. Uh, and uh, so the programs are not targeted. If you have the most cases in one part of Atlanta, 
there should be special programs that instantly are easy for you to use because uh, in public health, they're all excited. They quarantine. Quarantine you means I can't work. Uh, I, it's hard to go out and get things. So you would have specially designed programs that focused on neighborhoods uh, where people had high uh, incidence of cases. So the programs weren't aimed that way, but I'm really bothered when the number is that large that's spent and so many people are telling us in the highest risk groups. So not only long-term races and everything else, they are the most at risk of getting the disease. This disease has an unfairness about it uh, in that the number of deaths and cases are aimed right at people who are vulnerable financially. Well, Dr. Blaine, uh, someone yeah. listening says, if none of this can happen between now and the election and there could be a new administration, based on what you're saying, the outlook looks bleak for these communities. Uh, so uh, let's deal with the basics and every community group knows this. When you're in a community group where there's uh, a lot of financial hardship, it's very hard for you to have the resources to help people. Mm -hmm. You need it from outside. Uh, at the moment, Washington is able to run deficits that local communities can't run. And so the real answer in the short term is that Congress has to focus on trying to find emergency aid. Uh, when you have the wildfires in California, you don't say to people, look, you've lost miles of houses, your hospitals are burned or this or clinics. Uh, I'll come back after the election. Uh, if that's the answer, a lot of people are going to die and suffer and have terrible things. So uh, it still looks like uh, this country, and we're doing a national emergency. It's not a Republican or Democratic issue. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, someone's dying of the disease. It's not a party issue. Uh, so I have not given up hope uh, that the Congress, either before or right after the election, they will come, not come back and have an emergency package, but targets on the communities where the cases are the highest. So we don't sit there and negotiate 15 different things. You get some sort of a payment because a family member has tested positive. And it's not a lifetime, it's to get you through the next three to six months. Well said. Dr. Robert J. Blinden, Professor of Public Health and Professor of Health Policy and Political Analysis, Emeritus at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Dr. Blinden, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll have a link to this national survey on our website, The Impact of Coronavirus on Households by Race and Ethnicity. Thank you so much for taking the time. Just remember, I believe we can solve part of this. People do not have to suffer the way they are today. From your lips to the powers that be. Yes. <laughs> thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. You know, even prior to this pandemic, there was an estimated 10.5% of U.S. households experienced what they call food insecurity. That's according to 2019 data from the USDA. Now it seems even more households are struggling to make ends meet due to the financial toll of the pandemic. And according to the Urban Institute, more than one in six adults were food insecure as of this past May. And here locally, you know, we've had so many conversations about this. Food banks throughout Georgia also report an increase in the demand for food. And there are also other local organizations that are working to help those who need food. And that's what leads me to my next guest, Letitia Springer. She's the founder of a local mutual aid initiative called Free 99 Fridge. And there's always a great backstory to something like this. So we welcome Letitia Springer in. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rose. I appreciate it. Before we get into Free 99 Fridge, I just want to get your thoughts on, even in the U.S., we still have these pockets where we talk about, we no longer call them food deserts. We call them now food insecure communities. And now we hear about food insecure households. What do you make of that? Well, I personally like to call it food apartheid because I think it's very much intentional. Uh, so I don't subscribe to food deserts or food insecurity. It's very much food apartheid, something that was intentionally done 
I guess that's a whole nother topic for another another day. But um, well, no, let's very, get, no, 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 let's get into it. Go ahead, explain it, explain yourself. Oh, okay. Um, for me, food and apartheid implies that it was something that is intentionally, systematically designed for certain areas and certain groups of people. So I believe that when we use words like food deserts and things like that, that means that it was something that just kind of happened. I don't believe what's happening in these communities is something that just coincidentally happened. I believe it's very much intentional. So I think it's important to use words like food apartheid, which apply, implies that it was very much intentional, designed to impact brown and black communities. And we know that here in the Atlanta area, there have been neighborhoods that did not have a major grocery store within miles. And or if there was a smaller grocery store, there might have been challenges in getting fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, Mm -hmm. We know that that's a reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, again, is very much intentional, you know, where where businesses go and where um, where governments invest their money. That's strategic. It's not happenstance. They don't throw a dart <laughs> and decide where they're going to plant for, um, businesses and grocery stores. These things are very much strategic. Now, would you agree that the movement of urban farms or community gardens, that there has been a little bit of a, a movement to to help combat those communities that are without a major grocery store? Absolutely. Yes. I think there are a lot of initiatives that are taking place in our communities right now that are helping to kind of end this food insecurity and abolish the food apartheid that's happening in our city. And urban gardens or community gardens is one of those things. And make no mistake, I think it's going to take multiple efforts and initiatives to make this happen. Like this runs really deep and is interconnected to a lot of other things, not just food. And so I think it's going to take the combined efforts of many initiatives to make that happen. But lots of good work is happening in our city around around this area. Well, let's talk about your initiative. You call it a mutual aid initiative, Free 99 Fridge. Before we get to the backstory, what's the mission of this organization? Mission? Um, trying to bring in community, one fridge at a time, and also to eliminate or at least reduce uh, the food insecurity that's happening around Atlanta. Maybe difficult to say that we would get rid of food insecurity, or uh, but I can at least try. <laughs> so we're going to try to alleviate some of that pressure for a lot of communities that's around getting fresh food and having access to good quality food. Well, everything begins with a try, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> Let's yeah, talk about does. the backstory of Free 99 Fridge. Well, um, I had seen uh, pictures on Instagram of a community fridge. And I was like, oh, that's a cool idea. Maybe I'll do that one day. I don't have time for that right now. Because at the time, I was in the middle of uh, protesting. I was protesting seven days a week, uh, six, eight hours a day, depending on the day and my work schedule. But um, I was too consumed by the protest. So I just sat that idea to the side. And I'll, I'll come back and visit that some other time. Once I decided that I was no longer going to continue to protest, um, I had some time on my hands, but I felt uh, compelled to do something for the community because I thought like, well, now I'm not protesting. How can I help people? How can I make an impact on my community and really do something to eliminate all of this hurt that's happening right now? Like, what can I do? And I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw another picture of a community fridge. I was like, oh yeah, I did say I wanted to do that. I think I'm going to do that. And uh, I just decided that was something I wanted to do because I believe that, like I said, the food is interconnected with a lot of different issues. But if I can help to improve someone's food needs, I can somehow make an impact. Well, let's back up a little bit. Someone listening says, what's a community fridge? A community fridge. um, It is a fridge that's placed in a public space that allows 24-7 free access to fresh food. That people just it's very simple. I, I'm noticing that people are trying to overcomplicate this, <laughs> but it's just a regular <laughs> fridge that you put outside and tell people they can come and get it when they want free but, food. So it's a refrigerator that folks can come and it, it's it's a, it's a running refrigerator, right? It's not just a it is. 
It's a working refrigerator. So it's just a regular household refrigerator. I have received all of my refrigerators through donations. So they're secondhand refrigerators because part of this mission is also to eliminate waste, food waste, material waste, as much as possible to also uh, reduce our impact on the environment. So all of my fridges have been secondhand donated. They're working refrigerators. They are plugged into local businesses that commit to providing electricity to run our refrigerator and allow us the space to place our community fridge. Um, and then the fridge is stocked with food from the community. So this is food from us for us, right? So regular people donate, businesses donate food, and it keeps the fridges stocked for people who might need it. And who is in charge of making sure the food is fresh, that none of it's expired, keeping the refrigerator clean? That responsibility falls on whom? That responsibility falls on the community. So Mm -hmm. the community fridges belong to the community. I am taking the initiative of establishing them and placing them throughout the city, but ultimately they belong to the community. So it's our responsibility to make sure our fridges are maintained for our neighbors and our community family. So it's me kind of heading it up and cracking the whip, (laughs) but I have a group of almost 400 volunteers from the community who have signed up, who are willing to go by the fridge and make sure it's cleaned, reorganize it, sanitize it. Uh, So it's really an army of volunteers. What has been the feedback? Because you just started this this past summer, correct? Yeah, July 19th. (laughs) So I decided uh, on July 18th, that Saturday that I was going to do it, I reached out to a community fridge on Instagram like, hey, do you think I should do this? She talked. It's the friendly fridge in New York. I always appreciate her so much. Uh, She took like 30 minutes to have a phone conversation with me to basically say, yeah, you should definitely do it. Go for it. And then that Sunday I started it. So July 19th was the start date. um, And it has been a wild ride. (laughs) The community very much is excited about this project and behind it and pushing it. uh, And I've gotten so much support. It's been amazing. And are you able to assess how many people y'all are helping? Uh, Yeah, it's difficult to quantify the number of people because the fridge is outdoors and it's 24-7 access. So I'd really have to monitor it 24 seven. Um, but the biggest thing for me is that I know that I'm helping people. I get DMS from people who are saying like, thank you for feeding me while I've been unemployed. Uh, when I'm out at the fridge stocking the refrigerators, I get to meet the residents who tell me, you know, last week, a woman told me she has worked six weeks since March. And so having the refrigerators out there has really helped her to kind of offset those expenses and her living costs. Uh, So just stories like that, going out to the fridges and getting to meet people and talk to them, let me know that I'm helping people. And how many refrigerators do you have out in the area? Currently, I have three locations, four refrigerators. Mm -hmm. So the West End location has two refrigerators. I have one um, on Moreland Avenue and one on Edgewood Avenue. And I'm rolling out three more refrigerators in the next three weeks. Is this going to become a full-time job for you, Letitia? It's already a full-time job, girl. <laughs> I, I, don't, I see CEO and, you know, executive director of Free Fridge 99. <laughs> it's definitely a full-time job. Um, it's a lot of work. I'll be honest. Like, I, I make no qualms about it. Like, it's a lot of work. So I tell people if they're thinking about doing a community fridge, which I, I think more people need to be thinking about this because we definitely need more community fridges in our community. There's a lot of need. Um, but, uh, it's a lot of work. So, uh, a lot of sleepless nights (laughs) and early mornings. And the food that is donated, it's fresh produce some perishables and even some personal hygiene products. Yeah. So we build all of our community refrigerators with a fridge shelter, which provides, uh, just a barrier from the elements for the refrigerator. And it also provides a built in pantry area where we can collect non-perishables. So the fridge has, I'm always rooting for more fresh food, uh, but we also get prepared meals from restaurants, uh, fresh bread from bakeries. Uh, Yeah, we get a variety of things inside of the refrigerator and the pantry. People have been putting household goods and canned items and pantry staples. Can other entities sponsor a, a refrigerator? Yeah, absolutely. We would love that. I'm I'm just kind of getting into the the groove of that 
and welcoming sponsorships. But yeah, for sure, I, I would love to have someone to sponsor because, you know, these things do take money. <laughs> and so uh, a sponsorship would be very much welcomed. Now, are right you- now we've been funding everything kind donations of strangers. What's your vision for this organization then? Yeah. Uh, vision, as far as size, I'm hesitant to speak on that because initially I wanted one refrigerator. <laughs> like my plan was to get one refrigerator. But Letitia, like, it never works out. From. It never works out the way you plan it. This is huge. This is good for the community. So all those plans you had in the past, yeah. throw them out because they ain't going to work. So now right. it's growing. So you might as well grow I with know. it. Exactly, exactly. So that's why I said, I'm not even going to speak to size. I'm not throwing a number out because last time I threw a number out, I said one and the universe said 10. So um, I don't know in regards to size, how large it will be. But what I hope is that the this movement or a free 99 fridge represents just the changes we need to make in our systems and in our community but also the impact and the change that we can make if we all just do a little bit. So I'm hoping that the the fridges represent that for the community. Do you get requests for refrigerators in certain parts of the area that folks are saying, hey, can you come over here? I do, yeah. Mm. I've gotten requests in Georgia, outside of Georgia, um there's a lot of need all over but i'm only one person (laughs) is what i keep telling people so what i'm hoping to do is to educate others and support other people and starting their own community fridge so that they we can have more fridges because yeah i'm not going to be able to get everywhere well i'm getting also fridge donations is the other thing people like oh i've got an extra fridge you need another one i have more fridges than i can handle right now So what I'm looking for actually is a warehouse space, somewhere to call home, because as this movement has been growing, you know, I need somewhere to be able to paint fridges, to build, to store our refrigerators. So that's my biggest ask right now is that the organization needs a home. And so I've been looking for a space. Uh, So if the universe can deliver that, (laughs) that would be awesome. (laughs) Letitia Springer is the founder of a local mutual aid initiative called Free 99 Fridge. We'll have links to everything on our website. Letitia, thank you so much for what you're doing to help folks in our community. Thank you for taking the time. It's my pleasure. It's an honor. Thanks so much for having me, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.